Amen. Okay, look, I don't know if you've ever had an encounter like this, but you're talking to somebody, you may be uh, looking for an opportunity to share your faith. It's always a good thing, whenever you're in conversation, to be looking for an opportunity to share your faith. And you manage somehow to get onto the subject, and then you tell the person you're a Christian, and they respond that they are too. And then the next question, I don't know if you've ever had this been asked you before, the next question is, from them to you, is, are you a born-again Christian? I want you to think about that. I want to ask this question. Are there really two types of Christians? Uh, a normal Christian and, welcome back, uh, and a born-again Christian? Because it almost seems like that, doesn't it? So I remember, I had, it was a real-life situation. I said to the person, I'm a Christian, and their response was, yeah, but are you a born-again Christian? And look, we come across it in John 3, and I want to explore it with you what does that mean? Are there two different types of Christianity? Where does the whole born-again thing come, come into it? Should we use that more? I mean, do you guys use that terminology much here? I'm a, a born-again. You do. Sylvia does. It's in John 3, and I want to take you through the verses. We'll do some today, and then, God willing, uh, in a fortnight, we'll do some more. And we'll try and conclude these few verses in chapter 3. See, so you get a breather in between, okay? So here's the point, here's the heading. You Now you see it, now you don't. Now you see it, now you don't. Now, something of what's going on here with Nicodemus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. You know the Bible's full of statements are really understated. I mean, you know the one in Genesis when he says, and he, and he made the stars also? I mean, that was a big thing, wasn't it? I mean, you're talking of trillions and trillions of stars, but captured in one sentence? It's a bit like that here. Look, a man of the ruling Jewish council. There's a lot going on. You didn't become a member of this elite group of 72 people if you were a dummy. No, you were probably one of the smartest people in the country, you were wealthy, highly respected, incredibly intelligent. And the only way you got into the ruling council of the Sanhedrin is if you memorize at least the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and usually the entire Old Testament. I mean, this was a guy who was really in the, in the know. Okay, here was a guy who was really intelligent, intelligent. Here was a guy who was wealthy, who had all the backing of Israel, was incredibly powerful. They suggest that the Sanhedrin was only second in power to Pilate. So they wielded that kind of authority. So here comes to Jesus, and we're told, verse 2, he came to Jesus when? Oh, that's not very clear today, is it? I use black. Isn't, doesn't black doesn't work very well? Yeah, okay. Never use black. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to redo that. So apologies. Can you? That's gonna, you're going to really struggle with that, aren't you? But, so, hey, it's a good job we're going to use the Bible today, eh? But it does say, look, this is illustrating my point because it's about seeing. He came to Jesus at night. He notes that. And look, when you first read that, I mean, you've seen John 3, you may want to follow in your own Bibles or something today. It just sounds like, you know, uh, uh, an observance 
of time, doesn't it? He came to Jesus at night. Except, and you don't really know this if you read the whole book of John. I don't know if you ever tried this. It's if you've got two or three hours free, it's an excellent thing to do, to try and read a whole book of the Bible in one go. If you read the book of John all the way through, you begin to see that John uses imagery like this to convey deeper truth. So let me take you to John 13. Look how he uses it there. You're going to struggle to read it, but I'll, I'll read the words to you. John 13, 30. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Why? Have a think about that. Why would you think he's included that? It seems hardly relevant, does it? Judas is betraying Jesus and John makes the effort to convey and it's night. Have a guess. It may well be that. It could be. I was going to suggest something different, but thank you. Yeah, it could be that too. And that certainly seems the case with Nicodemus. He doesn't want to be spotted. But let me put it to you like this. Judas is betraying Jesus. Okay. Would you betray Jesus? No, why not? And why do you love him? Because he died for me at Calvary. He did, and what else do you know about him? Well, not I should have prepared it, shouldn't I? How long have you got? Go for it. What else do you know about him? Oh. About who he is? And, and why do you believe that stuff about him? Because it's in the Word, and the, and the Word is, is true. It is. So, okay, thank you very much. You passed the test. <laughs> <laughs> you know, thinking, oh, he doesn't do that to me. No, no, you're safe. Right, right. You believe in Jesus because you know all that stuff about him. You would never betray him, would you? The fact that Judas is betraying Jesus is saying what? He doesn't know any of that stuff. He doesn't know anything about Jesus, does he? I mean, you wouldn't betray God who knows everything because he's watching you. Hello? He can see what you're doing. I mean, for Judas to betray Jesus, it's telling you this guy knows half as less, way less than this young lady here. He knows nothing really about Jesus. He is spiritually in the, in the dark. Can you see? This guy, who also has been in the light, is really in the dark, because you'd have to be in the dark or totally stupid to betray Jesus, because he's, he's watching you. He knows what you're doing. And so can you see, therefore, when John includes this element? Look, it was nighttime. Of course he was. And he's probably what he was trying to do it in secret. Of course he was. But John is not wasting his words. He puts this bit in about Judas, and he went out to betray Jesus, and it was night, I think it's effectively telling us this guy is in darkness. He's in absolute darkness as to the reality of Jesus. And so let me take you back to John 3 and verse 2. And then put two and together. Here's Nicodemus. He came to Jesus at night. Okay, he wants to hide. I'm sure he does. But what's really going on here, and we're going to see shortly, what's John already telling us about Nicodemus? Like he was telling us about Judas. He's in the dark. He is in the dark. 
This is the ruling chief council member. He knows the Old Testament inside out. He's memorized every word. He's studied it since he was a lad. He's super bright, and yet John wants you to know, because what's going to follow, this guy's in dark. So, we can be the most religiously astute or aware or educated and be in the dark about Jesus. Be outside of the kingdom. And that's what's going on here. Let me show you. So it comes to Jesus at night and then we're told he addresses Jesus, Rabbi. So it's, it's a title, means teacher. It's a title of respect, okay? Rabbi. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. But he doesn't. Okay, let me ask you, if, if we said that Jesus comes from God, what, what would that mean to you? Pardon? He has to be the son of God. He's related to God. He's someone with a history beyond his birth. He's someone who is more than just a human person. Nicodemus, on the other hand, is just assuming. What's he seeing Jesus do? Miracles. Miracles. He's just assuming he must be from God, just like any other Old Testament prophet or special man. Someone sent by God. But Jesus is from God, not just because he's been sent by God. What does John 1 tell us? John's already told us this in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, which is Jesus. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. You see, even in his statement, he looked, teacher, we know you're from God. He's betraying his real lack of understanding of Jesus. He has no idea Jesus is God. God's son. He has no, no idea that he's been sent from heaven. He has no idea who Jesus really is, but he assumes he does. Rabbi, we know because of the miracles, you're from God. And Jesus jumps on him. Listen to this. Jesus jumps on him. He goes, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. I always think, you know, look, Jesus is Mr. Nice Guy. But he could be really direct sometimes. And you think, wouldn't you, this guy comes, he's, look, look how much risk he's taken. He's a member of the ruling elite council. What would the 71 do if they knew he was talking to Jesus? <laughs> really? Yeah, have a courtesy with his position. This guy's taking a lot of risk here. You think that when he said to Jesus, look, I think I've worked out you're from God, look at what you're doing, that Jesus would at least say, well done, man, and thank you for coming out to see me. But he jumps on him. Because you don't see a thing. You think you know me? You don't know anything about me. In fact, you can't know anything about me unless my Father has first done something in you to enable you to really know me. He says, Nicodemus, you think you see the kingdom of God? Listen to this. I'm telling you, Nicodemus, no one can perceive spiritual truths without first undergoing a transformation that is outside of themselves. 
I remember doing some school assemblies uh, when we were back in the UK, my first church at Naomi's school, the, uh, the one she taught at. If you've, look, if you've ever done anything with children, uh, it's just quite hilarious. You just really have to hold back the laughter. So I asked this question, I think I'd been there a couple of times, and I asked, look, can anyone here remember what I do for a living, what my job is? So the hands go up, don't they? And the first kid goes, yes? He goes, my dad is a policeman. I'm like, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> that's really, that's great. Can anyone remember what I do for a living? My dad works for, works for the fire brigade, and it just goes on like that, really. They just don't get it, do they? It's just, it's just hilarious. Something like that's going on here. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, and he's like, oh, I know the answer, I know the answer, I know the answer, sir. And he's a million miles off. And Jesus says to him, and Jesus is quite clear with him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And let me put you... Put this together with verse 3, and, and we'll begin to see what Jesus is talking about. Verse 3 and verse 5, sorry, rather, in parallel. Verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And verse 5 is a parallel, but expanded. Listen to this. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. In case there's some confusion here, water and spirit are saying the same things. What is Jesus saying to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you think you can see God. You think you know who I am. No one knows anything about me unless he's born again. And then he amplifies that. Unless he's born of water and the spirit and water and the spirit, same thing here. What's Jesus saying to him? He's not there. Why? What has got to happen? What is that water? What's he saying there? Anybody have a guess? I won't embarrass you unless you're Morag. Yes, he has to be born again. Through what agent? He doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, which has got to yet come. But the agent of that relationship? The Spirit. Yeah, you said it the first time. It is. And without that, there's no knowing God. So that born of the Spirit, as it sounds, is an indication that no one can really know God unless the Holy Spirit is already at work in your life, switching you on, as it were, illuminating your heart, more than just being merely, you know. I mean, have, you, have you ever wondered why your best friend can come to church with you, sit in and sit next to you, sing the exact same hymns, hear the exact same words, hear the exact same Bible reading, hear the exact same sermon, and walk away and go, this is, what, you, what do you come here for? Have you ever wondered what that is? Because no one can see the kingdom of God unless the Spirit of God is actively working in your heart. Here's one, the first one we're going to turn together in. 1 Corinthians, so Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Romans, 1 Corinthians. If you've got a Bible, turn to it. If you haven't, I'll just read it to you. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Let me just put my glasses on. You always know you're getting old. Duh, older. Well, you can't see properly. There we go. Hey, look at that. HD. Right, okay, so 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God, uh, God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say, and doesn't this sound like Nicodemus? No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' first point to Nicodemus 
is, look, Nicodemus, you don't see a thing. All you can see is some latest miracle worker, some prophet, perhaps some holy person, but you can't really see who I am because you, the Spirit of God has to be a work in your heart to see spiritual things. And I think Jesus is effectively saying to Nicodemus, you may be the, one of the most intelligent men in Israel. You may know the Old Testament off by heart. You may be respected as a great spiritual leader, but you don't see a thing. And you're outside the kingdom. And Well, he does, and he does. We think he got converted later. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, Paul was one of those. Paul probably knew more. He's probably, uh, pro- possibly a member of the Sanhedrin too. And look what he became. The greatest Christian ever to have lived. Yeah, we don't know what happened to Nicodemus later in life, but towards the end of his life, he's there. And so he, he did get converted, but at this juncture when he thought he was, he was still outside the kingdom. So here's, the, here's what I'm trying to say to you. I want you to turn to two verses in the Bible. And I want you to say, we looked at these together in my home group earlier in the week. The first one is in Ephesians. So, so, so first and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, if we come into the, the middle of the New Testament. And I want to show you this verse and just show you the, the basis of your faith or the origin of your faith. Look, we all, all agreed here that without faith in Jesus, there's no eternal life. Galatians, Ephesians. But I want to show you the origin of your faith. It's really interesting. Let me get my uh, little things on. There we go. So Ephesians 2. Have you got a Bible there? And we're looking at verses... Okay, if I can find it myself. I'm using somebody else's Bible here. Verse 8. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved... Through faith, what you believe about Jesus, okay? Do we all understand that? We're saved through what we believe about Jesus. This is through faith. But someone tell me, what's the origin of that faith? What does that mean? So where did you get your faith that you exercise? So you exercise faith? Yes. Yes. Can you see that? So the very faith that you exercise in Jesus... It's not what you mustered up. It's not as though you saw something, you heard something. And you thought, I believe. No. The very faith that you exercise in Jesus has been given to you as a gift. And the fact that you believe Jesus, Sylvia, and your neighbor doesn't, anchors on the fact that Jesus has given you a gift. That is the most precious gift you could have, the gift of faith. And as you exercise that gift, you came into relationship with him. Your heart was changed. You were born again. Let me show you one of, uh, one of the verses in John 6. John, well, did, did you want the rest of the sermon? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll put these pages together because you hopefully do want the rest of the sermon. There we go. So we just turn it, take it to one more verse, John 6, verse 37. 
So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John 6. Pardon? Oh, good one. There you go. If that works for you, you can do that. Like, Look, don't, don't worry. It's some weird Aussie thing. Don't take any notice of it. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to show you John 6, verse 37. If you got it, you're good. Otherwise, you can just have a look at this. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Can you see how that's tying in with Ephesians 6? We've already said that God gives you the gift, and then we read in John 6:37 about the Father giving people to Jesus. What Jesus is saying, and I want to say to you, I want to encourage you with this, friends, that the, that the root of your faith, of your salvation, of you seeing Jesus is not of yourself, it's outside of yourself. That gives us real assurance in the Christian life. Why does that give you real assurance in the Christian life? And I'm thinking of Philippians 1, here you began a good work in you. Why does knowing that your salvation began outside of yourself, why does that give you reassurance as a Christian? And I'm thinking of Philippians 1, here you began a good work in you. Amen. Have you begun a good work in you? We'll see you through to completion. You see, if my salvation began with me, when I was having a good spiritual moment, or when my life was on a good plane, and I generated faith, and I exercised it in Jesus, what is the danger of that? Yeah. You are, and things change in your life, and your intellectual abilities may change, and you may walk away from Jesus, but if your salvation began as a gift, can you really imagine God would take back his gift? Do you really think God makes mistakes? No, if our salvation began outside of ourselves, we have the assurance that he who began the work will see through to completion. Let me take you back to my notes here. You've, you've all seen these um, things. I'm sure you've seen them on the internet. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. There you go. There it is. Now I'll give you some here. Look, if at first you don't succeed, then skydiving definitely isn't for you. <laughs> okay. If at first you don't succeed, get a big hammer. That always works when the TV's on the blink, doesn't it? If at first you don't succeed, then get someone else to do it. <laughs> you know, instead, if at first you, you don't succeed, destroy all evidence that you tried. And one more, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, then quit. There's no use being a fool about it and keep pressing on and doing things, something you can't accomplish. Look, in a lot of things in life, it does come down to ourselves. If at first you don't succeed, you try, and you try, and you try. And in a lot of things in life, we are in some degrees the master of our destinies. We are, you know, we make choices and they have ramifications. And when we make mistakes, you know, we try harder, we learn from them, we move on from them. When it comes to spiritual things, and this is Jesus' point to Nicodemus, we can't try our way into God's kingdom it's something that has to come to us. And here's how you know it's come to you. Tell me, how do you know that God is working in your life? 
garden? Be- oh, sorry, I didn't hear that. Because, because, yes, because you are moving towards him. Here's the number one reality. Look, most of our world, and it's no different in Australia to, than it is to the UK, have no interest in God. And we know that even with our preaching of the gospel, we we cannot generate faith. But we know this, that in whosever heart God is working, he generates an interest, generates faith. If you've got somebody, if you are yourself, I don't know, look, I don't know where we all stand in Jesus here. Right. If you have any interest in Jesus, if you're moving towards him in any way, you have this encouragement that God is working in your heart. Because Jesus says he never turns anyone away. There will never be a person, and this is where I'll come back to Nicodemus in a second, Sarah. This is, this is the thing. See, there is no person that Jesus turns away. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me comes to me, and I will not turn them away. If you have an interest in Jesus, he He's working in you and you will get your fill. And I think that's what happened with Nicodemus. He was moving towards God in his own way. He wasn't there like he thought he was. But Jesus nevertheless later opened his eyes and he came through to faith. So the reality of our walk with, with, with God, friends, is that we cannot come to Jesus on our terms. We must allow him to open our eyes. He must define himself who he is. And we mustn't look to ourselves or to our works or to our positions or to our intellects as the reason why we're in the kingdom. That's Jesus' point to Nicodemus. He could very easily say that to ministers of the gospel. He could very easily say that to people who host services, people who help in church. I mean, how many of us, it's possible, isn't it, can assume that we have an inside track with Jesus just because we do something for him? Just because we know something about him. Just because we've got a greater understanding of Jesus more than him. Even, and here's the thing, even those of us who have been engaged in supernatural things, the working of miracles, the giving of special words to people, can be engaged in all of that and still be lacking a genuine work of God in our hearts. Do you know that? You know, the, you know the verse that deals with that? Can anyone think of a verse that quintessentially sums up that very thing? That's the verse. It's in Matthew 7. I'll turn to it. It's the last one. I'll turn to it in the Bible. This morning, that is. Um, <coughs> Matthew 7. I just want to show you. It's a frightening verse because, because it's just showing us the danger of being in Nicodemus's position and outside and how we can do all that and be outside of faith. So it's Matthew 7, verse 21. Listen to this. Isn't this describing Nicodemus? Could this be describing me? Not everyone who says to me, 7:21. not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That's a spiritual activity. That tells me that you can operate under all the charismatics gifts and be doomed. Seriously. So I'm telling you straight, speaking in tongues is not a sign of salvation. Okay? 
Neither is prophesying, neither is casting out demons, because these guys were doing it, and Jesus doesn't want to know them. He says, listen to this, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? For goodness sake, you think only a Christian could do that? No. I've seen it. I've been there. In Bangladesh. I've seen demon-possessed people. And I've seen demons being cast out. And not a Bible or a cross or a church in sight. Didn't we cast out demons? That doesn't, that doesn't make us believers. There's another one. This is frightening for me. Uh, prophet, drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Sorry, that's not the one I was thinking. Miracles? I mean, you think, wouldn't you? You invite a guy along to your church, you can do spectacular miracles. He must be a Christian. No! Seriously, Christian. We can be great miracle workers, have a miracle ministry. We can have a prophetic ministry. We can have an exorcism ministry under the name of Jesus, supported by the local church. And when we stand before Jesus, he'll say, I don't know who you are. That's scary. Very scary. That is very scary. It's actually one of my scariest verses. It is, isn't it? But that's the point of the verse, is to stop us looking at ourselves and try and add up. Because no matter how high a score you get, it doesn't work. These guys were scoring 99% on that examination, weren't they? And I think the point of it is, is to stop us adding up. And what did Jesus say to the ones who get in? Did I say that plainly? I never knew you. What did Jesus want? What was the quintessential mark of their faith? It wasn't that they add up in score of how well they're doing. What was the quintessential turning point of why they weren't in? He never knew them. And this knowing, pardon? That's right, you've got it spot on, Sylvia. Spot on. You see, there you go. So, Say that again because we've got some old deaf people here. They're relying on the gifts instead of the giver. And here's why it's encouraging for our faith because it's telling us, and here's the thing about Jesus that I never knew them. That's an intimate term. It's used in Genesis and other places in the Bible. When, you know, when fact, for example, when, Adam, when he says of Adam, and Adam knew his wife Eve, and she, she bore a son. It's real intimacy. Jesus is saying, I don't have that intimacy with you. How does Jesus have intimacy with us? What, what does he do with us? He communicates with us and he becomes one with us. How does he become one with us? This is real genuine intimacy by giving us his spirit who enters us. Wherever he is, we are. We are. Exactly, and that comes through that union. So in that real intimate sense, Jesus enters us. He becomes one flesh with us. We become a part of him. When his spirit dwells in our hearts, he, he takes ownership of us. There's a part of the Bible that when he says he gave us the spirit as a, a deposit. And so these people are outside of the kingdom, although they look like great super-Christians because ultimately Jesus isn't one with them. His spirit is not within them. He doesn't know them intimately. And so this is a challenge. Do I know Jesus intimately? 
I don't care if you preach sermons. I don't care if you do IT. But we do like you doing it, Sid and Ricky. <laughs> I don't care if you stand on the door. I don't care if you give lots of your money to church. I don't care if you read the Bible this week and last week. Some people are just greedy, aren't they? <laughs> right? Do we know Jesus intimately? Is his spirit in our hearts? Is there real relationship? And you don't have to score on that. And you don't have to score on how well you've done. Just that is there a real relationship between you and Jesus? Do you talk with him? Do you walk with him? Do you hear him? Is he your partner in life? Your companion? Your friend? Does he mean more to you than anyone else? There's a verse in the Bible, you know that, don't you? This is frightening. If you love your father or mother or brother or son more than me, what does he say next? You're not worthy of me. You see, this is how I know I'm genuinely of faith. Jesus is the biggest thing in my life. Not doing miracles for him. He could do it himself, for goodness sake. Not preaching sermons for him. He hardly needs me, does he? I mean, you were fine before I came here. And you'd be fine when I go. You know, you, you don't need me. No, it's Jesus. Are you hooked onto him? Is he your everything? There's a story from, if you ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's an, it's an amazing book of all the, all the early martyrs, and it records some of the great, uh, some of the happenings of people who are martyred for their faith. There's a recording of one there that I came across when I was studying theology at college. Let me just bring this. And about to, about to execute him, and they ask him, does he want to recant his faith? And he says, how could I? After all that he's done for me, he goes, there is, he says, these are his exact words, there is but one king, Jesus. And listen to this. And for him, I would die a thousand deaths. Do you hear that? It's the quintessential mark of faith. That our hearts are so sold out to Jesus that we would die a thousand times for him and think nothing of it. It's the knowing Jesus. Nicodemus will know Jesus. He comes to know him. But at this juncture, he's out of sort of faith. And I want to leave you with this. My time is up. Have we gone beyond mere knowledge of Jesus? Mere routine of church? Mere handling of the Bible? Mere serving him? Even in the miraculous, the prophecies, the exorcism, or whatever else it may be, have we been born again? Has Jesus, through his Spirit, entered our hearts? And here's how you know. Do you love him more than anything else in this world? Nicodemus will come to faith. We're going to look at, look at more of that next time. In a couple of weeks, I want to unpack more of the verses. 
But I want to leave you with that. Now you see it, now you don't. And let me give you this final verse. I quoted it earlier. I want to leave you with, a, with an encouragement as well as a challenge. That if God has begun a good work in you, and look, and you've struggled in your journey since then, and if truth be told, there's not a single person here who has not at some stage struggled in that journey. Your place in God is not anchored in how well you're doing, but it's anchored in he who began a good work in you. And his promise to you is he will see it through to completion. Trust him. Hook into him. Draw near to him. Believe in him. Love him. There is no king but Jesus. And for him I die a thousand deaths. Oh, may that be a testimony that we 